the impudence, the audacity, the unmitigated gall of those knuckleheads of liberty podcasters daring to voice opinions outside the mainstream of accepted thought. Listen, if you dare, it's angry, it's funny, it's even sometimes sad, but it's always based on freedom and justice, as you will see. Here's our host, Jason McPhee. Welcome to the Knuckleheads of Liberty. We're coming at you on September 14th, 2022. And boy, I tell you, the economy is just looking terrible, uh, which is uh, pretty much a constant under Biden. But fortunately, we have a, a, a guest to sort of break away from that today. Uh, and uh, we'll be inter uh, interviewing Joseph Becker of the uh, Mises, uh, Mrs. Institute. Um, and so, uh, but before I get into that, let me introduce you to our panel. Uh, in our upper left-hand corner, we have Leon, the word Brathwaite, last word in Liberty. He is a retired engineer in the state of California. Uh, we are missing our Screaming Eagle of Freedom, Tim Everett, today. He, is, uh, uh, he should be back in a few weeks. We're just having a few scheduling issues. So if you're looking for your favorite Screaming Eagle, uh, he will be back. <laughs> <laughs> um, and uh, in our upper right-hand corner, we have uh, Joseph Becker, and he is uh, a the provost of the graduate program of the uh, Mises Institute. And so we're going to talk about that uh, quite a bit during the show. It's really relevant to what's going on in the economy because, you know, we're getting all kinds of crazy advice that's just sort of leading us off a cliff. And hopefully uh, Joe can bring a little sanity to our world today. So, Joe, do you want to talk a little bit? Tell us uh, what goes on at the uh, uh, Mises Institute. Sure. Yeah, the uh, Mises Institute is a 40-year-old nonprofit that was created in 1982 uh, by Lou Rockwell. Um, he created it to, uh, I guess, to promote the ideas of Ludwig von Mises, uh, an Austrian school economist who was chased out of not – I can start by saying the Austrian school is not particular to the country of Austria. It just originated at the University of Vienna with Karl Menger and Mises and others. Um, but when the Nazis chased the uh, economists out of Vienna, Mises wound up in the United States, Hayek wound up in London. Uh, so it's a school of economic thought that is unique uh, in its methodology. Uh, we believe it's superior methodology and the Mises Institute was created in um, 1982 to, to uh, further and advance research in the Austrian School of Economics. So that's, you know, the Institute in a nutshell. The methodology of the, uh, the Austrian School is deductive as opposed to inductive. We don't look at, you know, vast amounts of data to create principles. We start with axioms and deduce from those axioms, other axioms, and it leads us not to say quite as much or try and predict the future, which by definition is uncertain, but to say if X, then Y. Um, and we use, again, deductive logic as opposed to trying to deduce, or I should say induce principles from looking at a vast amount of data. So, Joe, jo jo just for, for the sake of our audience, could you just give us a thumbnail sketch of what exactly Austrian economics is. Yeah, it's it's a it's a school of thought that, um, like I said, originated at the University of Vienna. It's method methodologically unique. Uh, it doesn't try and say as much, but what it says, it says definitively, 
And what you find out is that when you step through the deductive logic of what we call the science of human action or praxeology, uh, society benefits greatest when government intervenes in the market least. So that's that's where the uh, deductive deductive reasoning takes us. I see. So, Joe, you, you know, as you mentioned that, one of the things that has always struck me about uh, the, I, I guess, the mainstream uh, economics that seems to be guiding us constantly in the wrong direction is, is there there's so much noise that they're looking at. I mean, when there there's just so many distortions with so many government policies out there. How, it seems like how on earth could you deduce anything from all of that information? It's uh, uh, it seems like if, if you did have like a truly controlled experiment in a laboratory, like say a physics lab, and you you agitate something just a little bit, you could measure it. But with countless distortions, how on earth could anybody even hope to measure this stuff? Well, you know, uh, again, somewhat unique to the Austrian school, we do what we call thought experiments, where you change only one variable at a time. I know we're going to talk a little bit about inflation at some point, since it's on everyone's mind. I mean, you can know if you increase the money supply and hold everything else constant, that prices will rise, thus devaluing the purchasing power of people's savings. I mean, that that's very straightforward, very logical, very deductive reasoning. Um, if you try and run regression models with every conceivable variable, variable as the other schools of thought do, that's that's really where you run into problems because you can never identify all the all the variables that you talk about, all the noise. Uh, not to say that many economists don't try and do that, but. That's not that's not we, what we do here at the Austrian School. <clears throat> we do, like I say, thought experience, experiments where you change just one, one variable at a time. You could hold everything else constant, including the money supply, and lower the supply of goods. And that would also be inflationary because then you have the same amount of money chasing fewer goods and services, which means the price of those things will get bid up. Um, this is you know, just an example, given the current what's going on of how our methodology is effective. Okay. But if, but, but if I mean, in your, in, your, in your methodology, you, you hold one variable constant, which, and, and then try to see the effects in the, in, the, um, in the marketplace or in the economy in general. I mean, the other variables, the variables that we hold constant, they do impact the, the economic outcomes. So how, how do you all look at the, the overall, the overall well, we, um, effect of the various the variables, even those that are being held constant um, uh, while, you, while you're doing your thought experiments, as you call it? Yeah, I, if, I, if I misspoke, I apologize, but we hold everything up. We, we only change one variable at a time. We hold everything constant and change one variable. So in my example of changing only the money supply and holding out everything else constant, we can figure out what happens. We can figure out what happens if you raise the minimum wage above the market wage and hold everything else constant, including people's propensity to, to spend. Um, that, that's what we do. And then we, can, we won't always know the magnitude of the change, but we'll always know the direction of the change. In other words, if we increase the money supply, hold everything else constant, we know that prices will rise. We won't always know, you know, uh, we won't always know the magnitude of the rise, but we will know that it is 
definitively inflationary. Yeah. Because so. yeah. it definitely seems funny that, you know, with the uh, sort of mainstream economists, they, they constantly come up with these notions by, you know, showing us their model and then saying, look, if we raise minimum wage, it won't increase inflation. It won't increase, yeah. you know, uh, prices and yeah. any of these things. And then suddenly, you know, it's a disaster. And of course, if, if we know if, if they changed it, you know, to $100 overnight, you know, per hour, uh, clearly that would be an impact. But somehow when they change it by a few dollars, they just try and imagine that nothing happens. It's, it's just magical that you can do this. Yeah, the minimum wage is a good example. Um, I also like your reference to what we call the reductio ad absurdum, in other words, reducing something to its absurd end or following something to its absurd end. Yes, no one thinks we should raise, everyone Everyone understands that if you raise the minimum wage to $100 an hour, unemployment will result. But no one wants to concede that raising it to $20 will have the same uh, directional effect, although obviously, once again, the magnitude, the magnitude can change and, and something like that. Here's the deal. I mean, this is why we do the thought experiments changing one variable at a time. We call it ceteris paribus, holding everything else constant in the economic world. Um, if you raise the minimum wage and you increase the money supply at the same time, it might be that no increased unemployment results. But the thing is, you aren't really raising the real wage, then you're raising the nominal wage and the same amount of wage buys the same amount of stuff because the increased wage, you know, accounts for the increase in the prices that result from increasing the money supply. So all kinds of games can be played like that, where, yes, if you want to run a regression model uh, and you don't account for the increase in the supply of money, when you're looking at the raise, the the you know increase in the minimum wage, you lose that unemployment effect because there's more money to pay the employees the increased minimum wage. Not that you know, not that 98% of the people don't make more than the minimum wage in the first place, but that's a different that's a different uh, a, a different topic, really. Well, this this is what this is what I was trying to get to, Joe, is that. When you look at the um, the overall outcome um, of the economy, you're looking at the really and truly the combined effect of the very of all all the variables, all the variable inputs, all the independent right. variables, shall we say? So I was trying to get to if if the the your 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 um your thought experiments, as you say, is that you hold one variable constant. Um, no, you hold ever. I'm sorry. Everything, everything right. constant except one one of one of the variables. Yes. Then how do you how do you measure what I was trying to get to is how do you look at the combined effects because some of these variables may cancel each other out, but how do you look at the combined effect of the of the of the of the of the policies instituted? I mean, it might be the minimum wage, it might be the money supply. I mean, how 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 do you look at the combined effect? Is what I was trying to get to. Well, it's it's the way you look at the com combined effect is that you know the direction that each change impacts so right. if we increase the money supply hold everything else constant we know that the we know that inflation will result uh, if something else changes at the same time then what what we wind up with is well if inflation doesn't result inflation would have resulted but for something else but for something else changing um, okay. so it's important to know 
you know, economics is a positive science. It says what is, not what should be. If we decide that we want less unemployment, which I think most people think is a good idea, and we and we raise the minimum wage above the market wage, we know that that will result in less employment. Now, it, it might not happen because all these other things are changing. What, what it means is we would still have less employment than we would have had we not raised the minimum wage. In other words, so let's say that the money supply increases at the same time that the minimum wage goes, and it looks like we have no more unemployment than we had before. But the point is, we know as Austrians that we would have had even less unemployment if had, or, or we would have had even more unemployment had we uh, not done the other thing also. I mean, yeah. it's important because it tells us what the impact and the direction uh, is of every alteration in the economy, every step that we take when you, when you do it deductively and through thought experiments as such. Joe, I wanted, to, I wanted to impact the direction of the interview just a little bit to steer us a little more towards what the uh, Mises Institute is uh, doing over there and and some of the things, uh, some of the exciting things that are happening. Uh, but one of the first things I wanted to ask you is because Austrian economics is not really the, the mainstream um, and, and it's so tied into a lot of people's thinking who are liberty oriented people. How did you first discover Austrian economics and, and uh, sort of wake up to these ideas of liberty? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question that takes us back um, a number of decades. I, uh, I did 21 hours of undergraduate econ uh, at a traditional school and never was once exposed to this idea of Austrian economics. It was pretty free market where I was, because I had instructors who were, you know, pretty free market. A lot of economists tend to be, um, especially on, on certain topics, especially in the micro sense, not so much in the macro sense maybe. But um, so I'd done all this undergraduate econ, and then a friend of mine invited me to uh, a Ron Paul event when Ron was running for, uh, president on the libertarian ticket back in 1988. And uh, I helped Ron a little bit with that campaign, not as much as the friend who was more involved with the campaign, who's uh, since left us. But he's, uh, I worked with Ron a little bit. And at the end of the campaign, he gave me a, a book by Murray Rothbard for New Liberty. Uh, so I started reading that. That's what exposed me really to the Austrian school. And the Mises Institute, since its inception almost, has been doing something called uh, Mises University, which has nothing to do with the grad school. It's just sort of a clever little name that uh, the Institute has for bringing students such as myself who were in economics programs at traditional schools uh, for a one-week intensive seminar on Austrian economics, which they might otherwise never get exposed to. So that was my exposure back in 1989. I went after, the, after that 88 presidential campaign. I went to Mises University, which is held at Stanford at the time. Now we're doing those here in Auburn at our, at our headquarters. But uh, so I went to that, met Murray Rothbard, met Hans Hoppe, um, some of the other Austrians at the time. And I was so impressed with what I learned. I made a decision then to uh, finish my undergraduate degree as quickly as I could go to graduate school with, uh, with Murray and Hans at, at UNLV, which is where they were professors at the time. I subsequently went to law school, but I've you know, I've been loosely associated with the Mises Institute since the late 80s, and that's that's actually how that happened. 
Wow. Yeah, that's always one of those questions we, we kind of love to ask our guests because, you know, with everybody sort of having this common tie of going through government monopolized schools, uh, a lot of times we don't even think about these things. I know for me, my path was sort of discovering Milton Friedman and free to choose. And for me, that was in the when I was in my 30s. So, I mean, I, I didn't even... I wasn't even aware of any of this stuff. So it's always interesting to hear how people came to this because it's not, it's not the norm, sadly, and, and it really should be. But uh, uh, so that's one of the things, at least we like people to tell their stories. <laughs> yeah. And, and the Mises Institute has impacted thousands of students over its 40 years by bringing them to uh, Mises University, as I mentioned. We also offer summer fellowships for people who are working on their PhDs we give them a place to come in the summer with a stipend, a place to live, and access to one of the largest private libraries in the southeast, which is specifically, you know, topical with you know economics and history and and things related to to economics. Um, we also oh, okay. do. Oh, hold on, just saying, Joe. Uh, uh, James, could you pull up the screen again so we can show the screen for? Thank you. Okay, uh, go ahead, Joe. This is yeah. a uh, screen. This is the screenshot for the uh, uh, graduate school. That that's for the graduate about. school. I've not not quite gotten to that yet, but I oh, definitely oh, sorry, will. Sorry. Okay. Uh, I'm just sort of mentioning some of the other programs that the institute does. So they have the Mises University. That's for undergrads. It's a week in the summer. We do. Uh, summer uh, fellowships for people working on their PhDs or masters or JDs. They can come and spend a week, I'm sorry, uh, the whole summer rather, uh, at the Institute. Uh, that's a program that, that they do. And then we have something called Rothbard Graduate Seminar. This is sort of the equivalent for graduate students uh, that are in other schools um, where they come and spend a week doing an intensive study of, of uh, Austrian economics, which again, they typically wouldn't get in their programs. And then <clears throat> it was always the, uh, it was always the vision of, of von Mises and, and Murray Rothbard uh, to create a graduate school of Austrian economics. And, uh, you know, for years, the Institute has been uh, spending money uh, taking money from private donors and helping graduate students get through grad school. But it was always their goal to have the, their own graduate school of economics. They tried it a couple times and it uh, <clears throat> never quite panned out. But with this advent of the new thing they call the internet, perhaps you've heard of it. Um, <laughs> we figured out rather than spending money to send people to other schools, we could create our own graduate school. So in I guess 2019, the Institute called. Um, I had been practicing constitutional law for roughly 20 years, so had some experience in the regulatory field. So they they contacted me and asked me if I would, you know, come on full time and and work to create a graduate program in Austrian School of Economics, our own. So what we're doing is we're taking some of the money that we had devoted, all private funding, of course, that we had devoted to helping other students get through their graduate programs and redirecting that to uh, students who want to study, you know, take a purely Austrian graduate degree program in Austrian economics. So that's been my role for the almost the last three years. We started our first cohort in uh, January, I'm sorry, in August of 2020. We had our first uh, few graduates um, the month before last, but it's purely Austrian, it's donor supported, so, um, you know, the tuition they pay is far less than what they would pay at 
you know, other graduate schools, um, they can specialize in particular area, particular area of economics and work with a specialist in that in that area of economics. Uh, you know, we're not taking any federal money, so we're not subject to those regulations. And uh, the program is doing very, very well. We just started our fifth cohort of graduate students. Um, I guess this is what September, so last month in August. So you you want to see? Are you guys seeing growth in your in the number of students in your program? Yeah, it's uh, it's we've we've gotten good applications. Our graduate or our average undergraduate GPA is about three point four of accepted students. Many of them have graduate degrees already, but couldn't get this kind of thing. I mean, when I went to UNLV and studied with with Dr. Rothbard and, and Huppa. Um, I still had to take micro, macro, and quantitative with non-Austrians. Everything else I pretty much did was, you know, with with the Austrians who were there, which they were the they were the reasons I went. But this this program is is purely Austrian. I mean, even micro, macro, and quantitative is 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 taught by Austrians. And you know, one of the advantages of the institute having been around for forty years. Uh, the reputation certainly helps the school. But the other thing is we have created through helping students get to graduate school for the last four years, a whole a battery of, you know, PhD economists that are well steeped in the Austrian school. So we have great instructors, uh, you know, at our disposal and instructors, you know, PhD economists are eager to give back to the Institute and uh, happy to work enthusiastically with the students that, that get into the program. Is, is it broad, um, Joe, to try and get more of these uh, um, ideas just out there in the mainstream? I mean, is that, uh, you know, just to get more, I guess, working economists out there who can spread these ideas and in, in policy and other areas like that? Or Yeah, we're not, I mean, you know, sticking with the graduate school, we're not looking for hobbyists in the program. We are looking for people. In fact, one of the questions we ask on the application is, well, we ask two essay questions, really, and we, we look at them very closely in evaluating applicants. One is, how did you become, it's sort of the first question you asked, uh, or one of the questions you asked, how did I become interested or exposed to the Austrian school? We ask that question you know, what's your particular interest in Austrian economics? And then the second question we ask is, what do you plan to do with the knowledge once obtained? Because like I said, we're not looking for hobbyists or someone who just wants to hang a trophy on the wall, nor are the donors who are supporting the program. They want to know that when someone goes through this program, uh, and, you know, the entire program is less than less than $5,000, all books and tuition and fees included, which is a fraction of what students pay for most graduate degrees. Um, the donors want to know that those ideas are going to get proliferated and used in some productive way. So, you know, we expect that our graduates, some will go into academia teaching at the high school, junior college or four-year college level with a master's degree. Um, some of them will do policy work. Um, that might be at a state-based think tank. It might be working on the Hill, uh, as I did for five years for Ron Paul. Uh, 
It might be in finance. It might be in public interest law. Uh, it might be in estate planning or just, you know, business and entrepreneurship. These are all these are all areas where the Austrian school is particularly beneficial to the person who gets exposed to the to the school of thought and the ideas. And this program, this program, the the, the master's program, is this all online, or, uh, or is, there, is there some campus that they, they must go to at some point in time? Or how, how does it uh, work? It's not required. It's available one hundred percent online. Now we do offer one elective. I mentioned earlier that one of the things that the institute does is the Rothbard Graduate Seminar, where graduate students can come for a week for an intensive uh, session on on uh, some topic, you know, uh, within the Austrian school, um, within the Austrian school. Um, we do allow our graduate students to participate that in, in that as well. And that would be an elective that they can take. Um, they have to do additional work to what the other students do to meet the three semester hours of coursework load requirement. But, um, but that's not required. It's one of the electives that they can take. And so if someone wants to spend a week at the Institute, they can do it. But the program is available 100% online if if someone uh, never wants to set foot in the state of Alabama for some reason. Got you. Okay. Joe, what are some of the challenges you guys face there organizing as well? I mean, do you guys get any pushback? you know, from uh, people who are kind of anti-liberty people. I mean, I know every now and then you hear about people like, you know, maybe Walter Block or others getting attacked for, you know, uh, expressing just their views out there. Do you guys have any issues like that? Well, that's, I guess, one of the benefits of having our own school. I mean, we had to go out and get a, a private post-secondary school license from the state of Alabama. If you read the Alabama, you know, post-secondary school law, there's, you know, there's a statute that under the guise of protecting people against unsavory institutions or, you know, fly-by-night schools that will just take people's, you know, financial aid money and make off with it or give them nothing of value in return. Um, there's been this whole series of statutes passed in the states that require licensure and demonstrating to the state, you know, that you're not just going to take people's money or financial aid funds and give them nothing in return. Um, we've had no problem with the state of Alabama. I'm happy to say um, they seem happy that, you know, that we're doing what we're doing. Um, but, you know, we did have to meet, you know, we did have to meet those license licensure requirements. Uh, we don't have the problems that, you know, other economists do in state schools because we have our own school. I mean, that's that's the beauty of it. We teach what we want, um, and and we don't have some college president or university board of regents. We have the board of directors of the Mises Institute that guide the program, uh, and none of them are going to be opposed to advancing the ideas of Austrian school economics. That's what we do. Well, Joe, we're almost out of time. Um, hey, there's a, a website uh, that uh, we're scrolling across the screen where people can find out more. If you wanted to uh, give a quick shout out to any particular uh, directions for people to get in contact with you guys or any last thoughts that you wanted to share with the audience real quick. 
Yeah, just MisesGraduateSchool.org, Mises.org for the Institute in general, but we're always looking for good students to advance uh, research in the field of Austrian school economics. Thanks so much for joining us. Until the next one, stay free. Yes, indeed. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, always and forever. Thank you for listening to the Knuckleheads of Liberty podcast. Find us on Facebook, Rumble, YouTube, your favorite podcast network, and at knuckleheadsofliberty.com.